KQED. Hey everyone, I'm Emmanuel. I'm Carly. And I'm Jamidra. And we're the hosts of The The Cooler. Pack your bags because this week we'll be traveling back in time over 50 years to unpick a juicy controversy from 60s Britain that shows the more things change, the more they stay insane. We'll also be reviewing review culture. I give this episode five stars for being meta. Would listen again. (laughs) (laughs) And pigs must be flying because Disney and Big Pharma are restoring my faith in humanity. Also, I'm going to share a song that you can literally play every damn day of the week. Yes. Every day. I have this Greek homie. You may have heard of him. His name's Socrates. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think Bill and Ted reliably informed us that that is pronounced Socrates. Right. Exactly. I I thought you were going to say John Stamos, but. (laughs) Oh, well, yes. He is also my Greek homie forever. So Socrates, as you said. Mm -hmm. Once said himself, the unexamined life is not worth living. Mm. That's a solid quote, right? That's a quote for a mug, a tote, and a t-shirt. Yeah. It's so solid that thousands of years later, our culture has really taken this idea to heart. Most of us feel the urge to examine, see what I did there? Examine. Mm -hmm. Examine all of our experiences, either beforehand by checking reviews of restaurants we're going to or bars that we plan on blacking out in later, or afterward, by reviewing the experience ourselves via sites like Yelp. I love it. I love researching restaurants. Like, I actually enjoy that more than going to the restaurant. Really? Yeah. I like a surprise. Now, all I need to know <laughs> is that the little placard says you got a, a B or an A, and then I'll go in and eat. That's all I need to know. But you mean the hygiene? Yeah, the, yeah I need, that's, that's as that's much your, research as I need. That's all you need? That's all I need. That it passed a hygiene rating? Yes. You're like, because... can I expect a cockroach on my sandwich or not? Because it's about the experience. I feel like I ruined the experience if I read too many reviews. She doesn't want spoilers. No. She doesn't want to know what's on the menu. (laughs) She wants to know how big the cockroach is, and that's it. Exactly. So we're out here in these cyber streets Mm -hmm. just sharing pictures of our fine selves and our fancy meals. And we're also sharing our fresh takes Mm. on pretty much everything that we experience. Yeah, it's fresh. We don't give that much thought to what we put out there, but maybe we should if this story is anything to go by. Mm. Picture it. A woman named Michelle looks at the time and realizes, oh, it's time for my annual gynecological exam. Oh, my. We've all been there, right? No. Mm. You are not about. No. Is this what this story is about? Kind of partly. Okay. I'm all ears. Yep. Bring it. So Michelle goes to see a new doctor, and other than the general discomfort of having a brand new stranger between her down there, things go fine. As fine as they can. (laughs) Then she gets the bill. She believes that the bill has some bogus charges on it, so she goes to various review sites to spread her truth. I did not order the appetizers, but yet was billed for them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And the service was subpar. (laughs) So the world kept turning. Because she has a right to speak on her own experience, right? I would say so. Not so fast. Nothing is that simple these days, especially if it involves testimony from a woman. Mm. Oh, God, I'm so glad you mentioned that. So her gynecologist is now suing her for... One million dollars. What? Topical reference. Can you believe? (laughs) The doctor claims Michelle should pay him one million smackers. For? For defamation, libel... And emotional distress done onto him. Onto him? Has he ever had a gynecological exam? (laughs) So what did she say in this review that was so awful? She said that, hey, this bill 
does not make sense. He gave me an ultrasound because he said that was part of the annual thing that's covered by my insurance. But then he charged me extra for that service. Mm. And if it's not covered by insurance, he shouldn't be offering that. Is it like when you you take your car to the shop and the lights will only cost $20, but the man hours. The labor, the parts and labor. Secret charges. Watch out. (laughs) Hidden fees. She basically was like, he's a crook, don't go. Mm. So he got upset suing her for a million dollars so far michelle has spent twenty thousand dollars defending herself and it sounds a little ludicrous that all this came from a online review so i like looked into the legality around this whole thing and apparently legal experts say that if you don't want problems you should make things as specific as possible to your own experience don't make broad proclamations like he's a crook because they will come for you so it's okay to say this guy was a crook to me the court of law will decide. I'm not a juror anymore, so I can't. I was going to say, <laughs> that part of your life is over. Yeah, I've hung up my jury number eight hat. That's Great while it lasted, though. Oh, it's, it's really good. So this story got me thinking about review culture in general. It's interesting that a medium that used to be just for like expert critics now has been opened up to pretty much anyone with an internet connection and an opinion. So I'm curious, what do you all think about review culture? Has it gone too far? Is it useful? What is it good for? Absolutely nothing? Discuss. <laughs> I will read a review after. Like, if I experience mm. something, then I'll read a review after about a restaurant or about a movie. I'm trying to think if I've ever written a review about anything before. I don't think I've ever written a negative review about anything. I've only written a review because a fearsome woman running a bed and breakfast basically bullied me into it. <laughs> what? Yeah. She was like, you're going to write the review, right? And I was like, yeah. yeah. Oh, one of those situations. She was scary. Mm. And breakfast were great, though. No, the best <laughs> I'm going to give you is a check-in. I'll give you a check-in. <laughs> that's, that's where I draw the line. <laughs> Airbnb gets me when they're like, someone wrote a review about you. Oh, then I'm interested. And you need to write a review in response to see what they wrote about you. The narcissist in you and in all of us wants to know. Okay, well, lies. Because I have written reviews about my Lyft driver. But just the little checkbox. And, you know, he was great. He was a great conversation. Friendly, smells good, gave me a candy bar. But only nice things. Yeah. There are two camps. People who like to write reviews to help someone that they engage with. Like, that person was nice. I'm going to help them out by writing something Mm -hmm. positive. Then there's the dark side of reviews where it's like, I want to get even with this person. Mm. Or maybe you did genuinely have a bad experience and want that person to suffer repercussions. No, Mm. I go old school. If I had a bad experience, I ain't writing no email. I'm writing a letter. I'm going to write a letter to somebody, to your boss, to whoever. In green ink. Mm -hmm. Huh. Damn. Get me my quill. Okay. I got some adjectives and nouns. (laughs) Well, I was thinking about like this element of everyone being a critic now because everyone can be a critic. And I don't know, I was wondering about what distinguishes actual paid critics from regular people with opinions now. Mm. Like, I sometimes wonder that. Is it a byline? Is it like credibility and qualifications and experience? Or is it genuinely just like the amount of like page views and attention you get? Is, Is that it? And I was also thinking about this whole internet culture we have now of rushing to deliver like the hot take Mm. like when an album drops and when a new show everyone is coming we last saw that with Childish Gambino and the This Is America video like suddenly it was like a race Yeah, like who can get the hot take up super fast the amazing race to have the freshest take but be the wrongest because you rush to do it (laughs) yeah but here's the thing though I feel like the culture sort of breeds a level of bullshit because you can't have an opinion about every single thing. Or you can't have, like, a strong, insightful opinion about every single thing all I'm the time. I'm so glad you said that. Like, it's just it's just not some things you just don't care about. So I do wonder about, like, professional critics in general. I mean, we're talking about, like, Yelp reviews, yes. But then I also wonder about professional critics and, like, what they do when they don't have a fresh take. And I think that's where we sometimes get a lot of this BS reviews. And they're like, genius! <laughs> they 
these are genius. I feel like they concoct them. Like, they go and sit in a chair for like five minutes and just tense like Pikachu and just try to like work some feeling up. But like you say, so you don't have to care about everything. Exactly. So, I mean, I need to know, because you have written a review or two in your day, sir, oh, about TV shows That's and about right. everything. So what is it like to be in that position? There is a lot of pressure for Internet writers these days to have a fully formed thesis statement mm. right after you watch something or heard something. And I was on that hamster wheel for a while. And then I was realizing my writing wasn't as good because I didn't have as much time with it. Mm. And also, I feel like I didn't really think it all the way through. Ooh. I had thoughts later that I wish I had just gave it some breathing room. And said something more important than just like, I need to get this up before midnight so that I get the clicks by tomorrow morning mm. and then I look good to the world and I get a check mark on Twitter. Like, who cares about and that? And you're always writing with one eye on the audience as well in a way that I'm not sure people were doing before. Like, mm-hmm. you can't deny that when you're writing something now for KQED Pop, you are imagining how people will react, like the tweets you'll receive, the the page views. It sounds like to me when you're in a confrontation or an argument and then a day later you're like, I should have said. (laughs) Yes. I should have said. Damn it. Well, we know what that's called in French. Esprit d'escalier. Exactly. Mm. Guys, I'd just like to remind you that even when you do let very sincere opinions percolate for quite a few weeks and then you dare to write a critique of Stranger Things and offer it up to the internet, (laughs) people don't like that and call you names. Go and check out my Stranger Things critique. (laughs) So that brings up a very important question about review culture. What if you're wrong? I mean, I wasn't. (laughs) And I have you on tape saying that I wasn't. No, but like, what do you do if you have like a really strong opinion and you rush to like say it and post it and then like years later you're like, eh. Oh, you're talking generally, not just about me. (laughs) But I said it like that because I wanted to see what your reaction would be. Rage. Incandescent rage. (laughs) But like, what do you do? You're just like, at the time, you're like, Crossroads is the greatest movie of all time. It's really impactful. I feel very attacked right now. Your tone is very pointed. That's a great point. I love it when people can admit they're wrong, like in life and also in writing as well, you know, to evaluate something and be like, yeah, I kind of messed that up the first time around. I wrote this thing when I first started working here way back when, and it was about this new artist, Lady Gaga. And I was like, (laughs) she is the Madonna of our generation, which some people still believe. And I said that she's going through Madonna's career, but like at lightning speed Mm. now that she has resources and we have the Internet and all of these references and whatever. And I don't think I was completely wrong, but the like standing I was doing, the level of standing (laughs) in the written form, I'm a bit embarrassed. It It didn't age well. Well, because I was like, I could see us still being at her concerts when we're 50 or 60 and I don't see myself there when I'm 50 or 60. I mean, but here's the thing, Joanne, though. Joanne? Here's the thing, though. She was hot then, though. If she, she if was. her If her career projection had continued the way that it, it was going, I think that that would have been the case. But right. at some point, she kind of, like, lost her foothold, and now we're like, yeah. Yep, co-signed. Her mechness now does not detract yeah. from the fact that Bad Romance is a great okay. song. And since you have admitted that embarrassing time in your life, mm-hmm. I will go ahead and admit an embarrassing time in my life. One of our pilot episodes that never aired, Ooh. that we recorded in a conference room. <laughs> don't, uh, don't draw the curtain back too yeah, much. I'm just saying. It was like, it, it was tough times, tough times. <laughs> I said that Rita Ora was likely to be the new Rihanna oh, of our I time. I remember that well. Yeah. I'm just turning my back to you. I forgot all about that. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring it up for three years. Yeah. But since you have. Yikes. I, I do want to like rep critique culture a little bit here. I do think there are positive elements. And the thing that like leapt to my mind was that there was a time when only certain folks got to write their opinions and have them printed in newspapers. Siskel and Ebert. 
And now it's more like democratized by social media. And this is the reason that, say, like Ghost in the Shell trailer drops and people can react with their take on it. <laughs> and previously that's a take and a voice that wouldn't have been heard. I'm also thinking about Matt Damon that time. He was like a warrior in Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Saving was, China. Yes. I think that movie got reviewed before it was even out. <laughs> well, we just yeah. decided. <laughs> Which is the downside, I guess, that something is judged before it's even been seen. Well, some people don't like that democratization of critiquing, such as DC Comics fans were very upset about Rotten Tomatoes giving Suicide Squad a bad rating. Oh. So they started a petition to disband Rotten Tomatoes. And that seems like a little extreme. Hmm. But I have to say, Rotten Tomatoes is wrong sometimes. I'll tell you a few times. Ooh. Wet Hot American Summer, 32%. That's exceptionally low. I don't even know what that is. Home Alone, 56%. What? Oh, no, that's, Are that's you crazy? a travesty. No. Spy Kids, 93%. It is not Amadeus and like Schindler's List. Let's calm down. <laughs> so they're wrong sometimes. Some other people who are wrong, but in a funny way are people who leave one-star ratings on very random things. Like yes. this one-star review of the Pacific Ocean. What? Yep. <laughs> this person has feelings. Quote, it's too damn big. I've heard stories of people getting lost or even worse, crashing their plane because they ran out of fuel. Amelia Earhart was an inspiration for women. This will keep happening if nothing's done about this. Where was this posted? I don't understand. This was on Yelp. Okay. <laughs> Or this one-star review of Yosemite. The trees block the view and too many gray rocks. Who views the beauty of Half Dome and then thinks about the hot take they're going to post? This person, yell afterwards. <laughs> People who have too much time on their hands. That's too it. much time. It's a four-hour drive back. Mm. Yeah. If you like one-star reviews of national parks, you're in luck. Because I got another one. I visited Big Ben last year around Labor Day weekend. I thought there'd be a lot of visitors and tourists, but I was wrong. The park was empty. I found it lonely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also going to give a solid five stars out of five for that dramatic reading of that. Yes. <laughs> and I'm about to deliver one more dramatic Hit me. reading. This review of a bathroom will take you on a journey. One of my biggest fears as a public restroom user is someone walking in on me. The bathrooms at this establishment escalate that fear times 10. The stalls are sliding doors with no locks. No. The entire time I was using the restroom, I was paranoid someone was going to swing the stall shutter right open and expose me at my most vulnerable state. Along with the stall doors not having locks, the toilet paper was two ply and nearly Ooh. tissue paper thin. It took me about 24 squares to get the job done. Normally, I would only give three stars to an experience like this, but the craftsmanship of the bathroom sinks oh. is amazing. <laughs> wow. So I give this overall bathroom experience four out of five stars. I did not see that M. Night Shyamalan who, twist coming. Who are these people? She is fair. She is reasonable. She is long-winded. Clearly. She has opinions. She's winded. <laughs> and one person who no longer has an opinion for reasons that will become clear very soon. This one-star review of Ford's Theater from someone called Abe was murdered <laughs> there. Would not recommend. <laughs> they had to do it. So no matter what you think about review culture, I would like to think that these fun reviews probably put you listeners in a good mood, a good enough mood to do us a solid and give oh. us a five-star rating on iTunes. Come through with the five nice. stars. See what I did I like there? the tie-in. Shameless, like Chris Jenner taught me. Mm. Your segues are fire. Five stars? Five stars. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Jamidra Emanuel, my dear co-hosts. Yes. Hi. 
it is fair to say all three of us have sung what we could conservatively refer to as a little karaoke in our time. Oh, yes. In the shower every morning. Just a smidge. But... I wonder if, like me, you have ever ill-advisedly taken on the Billy Joel classic, We Didn't Start the Fire. Nope. Nope. I can't say that I have. Not my jam. (laughs) Emmanuel, that's not what you told me previously. (laughs) (laughs) I respect it, but I'm not here for it. Exactly. I don't think anyone is at this stage. Mm. Does Billy Joel still have fans? Anyway, that's the sidebar. But it's the song where he basically just lists like world events from the 50s and the 60s. Oh, I, Uh I am struggling to even remember. It's like fast, right? It's super fast. Don't do it. I can say that. But in that case, if you have kind of heard it once in your life on the radio, you'll remember this bit about two and a half minutes in just as you're starting to pass out from lack of oxygen while you're singing it, because it is fast. Okay, another chorus, and that's, those are some pretty intense events to be sung at a hot, like a upbeat tempo. I would so, also like to redact what I said earlier. I am here for it. Oh, oh, now you are. I, I like it. It also has a terrible video. I encourage you to check it out. If you've ever sung that line, that British politician sex mm-hmm. line, you have been singing about a very weird, very scandalous piece of UK history from over 50 years ago, basically, that I think you guys will be interested in. Oh, It starts, as many things do, with a randy middle-aged politician meeting a beautiful 19-year-old. Mm, oh, boy. Yeah. The old story. Yeah. And ends with Russians. Perjury, jail, death, disgrace, <gasps> and the downfall of a government. And the whole thing is as relevant as hell in 2018. Let me pull up a seat. Go ahead. Yep. So, guys, let me hand you these uh, Union Jack hats. You got yours? <laughs> Thank you. Pop the, that right on. Oh, okay. Uh, these London bus tickets. Oh, okay. I'll take that as well. And these, hang on, careful with these, these steaming cups of uh, hot British breakfast tea. Mm, I love I, tea. I'm, you can keep that one now. <laughs> okay. Picture the scene. It's the summer of 1961 in Great Britain, and people still sound like this. The Queen did me the great honour to ask me to form a government. I have accepted this duty. Can we just go back to a time when people had those accents? So, I mean, <laughs> yes, we can. 2018 Britain. Say, just, just I want to talk like that from now on, say. It's amazing. So spontaneous and natural sounding. The 60s in this time, 1961, are definitely not yet swinging. World War II era rationing only just ended seven years ago. The pill isn't available yet Damn on it. the NHS. I can confirm that it is now. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, this is not the Britain that you have seen in Austin Powers Mm. in the 60s. It is not that. Put it out of your mind. A guy called Harold Macmillan, who was the dude you just heard on the clip, is the prime minister and the Conservative Party is the ruling government. The Secretary of State for War, the UK Defence Secretary basically, is a 46-year-old man called, wait for it, John Profumo. Oh, he sounds like Pepe Le Pew. Uh, It's a cool name, cool guy. He sounds like a Harry (laughs) Potter spell. He is married to a famous English movie star called Valerie Hobson. But this whole story I'm about to tell you is so insane that that fact isn't even going to come up again. Hmm. So don't even be looking for like the movie star wife. The other stuff that's going to happen is too insane to even mention that. So in July 1961, this dude, John Profumo, goes to an incredibly posh party. 
and here he meets this 19-year-old woman called Christine Keeler, who happens to be swimming naked in the pool. Of course. I guess. That's how you get down. That's very half of her. That's like a very Playboy Mansion situation. Who among us yeah. has not just jumped in? Yeah. Um, she was an aspiring model who'd had a sexy photo shoot for a British magazine called, and I'm not making this up, the magazine was called Titbits. <gasps> oh, okay. Oh, Those that's... 60s sound swinging to me. Ooh, <laughs> just, just a little bit of swing. A little dangle. Uh, and she, then she was working as a topless showgirl in a London cabaret club. And depending on whose account you believe, she's also a high-class escort. And she is at this posh party because she is super tight with a much older guy called Stephen Ward, who is going to be crucial to this whole story. So listen, he is going to come back into it. Okay, let me take my notes. He's one of these people who is many things. His day job is osteopath to the stars, (laughs) cracking the backs of the rich and famous. He's also this big social climber and he knows everybody from politicians to royals. And because he knows everyone, including some Russians, Mm -hmm. Stephen Ward has been recruited by the equivalent of the CIA in Britain. We call them MI5 Mm -hmm. because they sound less cool. (laughs) He is a busy man, guys. His LinkedIn is full. He has endorsements. Clearly. Yes. Back to Christine Keeler, the showgirl, swimming naked in the pool. Stephen Ward knows her from the club. And because she's gorgeous (laughs) and he thinks I can make bank off this woman, he has taken Christine and her younger friend Mandy. Mandy is going to come up again. Write that name down. So he's taken them under his wing and they are basically living with him in London and now... They're at this posh party because Stephen Ward is invited to this posh party. So our politician dude, John Profumo, sees Christine in the pool, goes all heart eyes emoji. And within a few days, you know what's happening. Uh, mm. Mm. Even though he's got the actress wife at home, this is how they act. See how people act? (laughs) See how they are. They're getting it on. In case we thought something else was happening. They were Netflixing and chilling. Mm. But wait, I'm going to pause you a second. I am not just telling you a story about a powerful man having an affair. That's too common. Well, you said Russia, so I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. Exactly. Let's zoom out a little bit and talk, as we often find ourselves doing right now, about Russia. Remember, at this time, 1961, the Cold War is cold AF. Mm -hmm. The USSR is testing big bombs like crazy. The Berlin Wall just went up. The Russians just put the first man in space and are being very unchill about the whole thing. Things (laughs) are not cool. Shout out Yuri Gagarin. Things are not cool between Russia and the UK, and they're not cool between Russia and the US either. And given all this, Christine has started sleeping with the UK Secretary of Defense, right? Very possibly hearing very sensitive information from him over a cigarette, Mm, post-sex. Who would be the very worst person for Christine Keeler to be having a simultaneous affair with? Mr. Russian. I was going to (laughs) say. Sounds Russian to me. The exact person she's also involved with is a Russian spy working at the Soviet embassy in London. He thought your love triangles were complicated. Seriously. His name is Ivanov, and he's one of those Russians that her dear pal, Stephen Ward, is tight with, and it's almost like he set them up with each other. Oh, no. It sounds like Ward is messy. He likes to think he's the puppet master, Mm -hmm. but just you wait. So, like, state secrets potentially being passed to Russians... Compromise, like, are you seeing any modern parallels here at all? Collusion. <laughs> Can I just call Ward Littlefinger for the purposes of this conversation? Oh, we shall be referring okay, to him yeah. as that. Yeah. Okay. Stephen Littlefinger. <laughs> 
but it actually gets worse. Some time passes and Profumo and Christine, like their affair winds down, as it so often does. And then she goes on to date like a couple of really quite violent dudes. And the first one is a musician called Lucky. And the second one is a sailor called Johnny. And Johnny reacts so badly to her breaking up with him that he takes his gun and fires a bunch of shots into the place where she's staying into that house, which is, you guessed it, Stephen Littlefinger's house. Oh, and Littlefinger's not having it. No. He knows people. Trust me. And guys, have you ever had that where you've had that kind of brush with death, like you nearly stepped out into the road and then someone like yanked you back at the last minute and it kind of just makes you look at life in a new way. Hmm. You know, you start seizing the moment more and you've had that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this brush with death kind of makes Christine Keeler kind of talkative about all that messy stuff that she's been going through. Like, you know, when you're on like a night out and you're a few drinks deep and Mm -hmm. you're emotional anyway and you start spilling all of your deep state (laughs) personal secrets to a total stranger about that time you were having sex with both the UK Secretary of Defense and a Russian spy. Yeah, Yeah, that's fine. I mean, everybody's been there, yes? We've all been there. It's a universal story, guys. And that's what she does one night at the club, basically. But the stranger happens to be, completely by chance, this ex-politician. It's the equivalent of, like, us meeting someone in the loos and spilling it all to them, and then they go back and tell all of their friends in Parliament. Sounds like a very small town that she happens to be dating the Secretary of Defense and happens to be related to Russians and happens to tell an ex-politician about all of it. It's one of those places everyone knows everyone. Clearly she knows how to pick them. So this guy that she tells in the club immediately goes and tells all of his like politician friends. And by now, everybody pretty much knows about it. However, like the papers won't just come out and say what's going on because the government is beefing big time with the media, ringing any bells here. Um, Fake news. Yep, because like not that long before, a random politician got blackmailed by, wait for it, Russian spies. And two journalists were actually sent to prison for not giving up their sources. Oh. Again, mark this down on your sheet, guys. Attacks on the press, mm-hmm. outright hostility from Check. the administration towards the free press. Bells are ringing, right? Mm-hmm. You're putting it together. Meanwhile, it's 1963. We've skipped on a little bit. Johnny, the dude who shot up Christine's house, goes on trial. And everyone is like, wait, so is this like John Profumo dude somehow involved with this like gun thing? What's going on? And rumors are going nuts. And Profumo gives this statement to the government saying, and I quote, there was no impropriety whatsoever in my acquaintanceship with Miss Keeler. Who does that remind you of? I just, a blue dress just popped up in my mind. That's, yes. Monica Lewinsky, all on my gown, (laughs) said the great prophet Beyonce. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As Bill Clinton would have told Profumo had he not been 17 years old at the time, because this is 1963, that stuff will come back to haunt you. And Profumo actually, again, bell ringing, called fake news on anyone daring to point out the blatantly obvious, and he actually had the gall to sue a magazine for libel. Really? Which is a pretty ballsy move. And so now the police are like, oh, this little finger guy, this Stephen Ward guy, he clearly knows way too much. And they begin investigating him with a vengeance and the whole like socialite spy backcracker to the stars thing that he has going on Pruined. starts to fall around his ears. They, being the police, start leaning on Christine and also her pal Mandy. Remember Mandy? Oh, yes. yes. Mandy's back again. And to the extent that Mandy actually gets like put in the slammer for a couple of nights for this random driving offense. Oh, uh, she sang like a bird, honey. Oh, amid all of this, remember like Christine's messy love life? Remember the other like boyfriend, Lucky, the musician? She says that he has come to her home and attacked her. So he is arrested and put on trial. And this is important because she is going to give evidence of that trial. 
spoiler alert, the evidence is going to be dubious. And at the very same time, Profumo is realizing stuff has got way too messy. The game is up. Everybody knows that he lied. And he finally admits it all and resigns from his government job. His uh, house of cards has come down. Proto Kevin Spacey. <laughs> wow. And now that it's all out in the open, the press can go nuts. And they do. And they not only nail Profumo to the wall, but they take down Stephen Ward, a.k.a. Littlefinger, painting him as like this pimp and this Russian colluder, which, let's be honest, he kind of was both. I was going like, to say, he, yeah. it sounds like it was. Yeah. And like this is at a time when TV is just getting big in the UK. People are starting to like watch it like regular people. And ratings are going through the roof as the story keeps getting bigger. And at the heart of it all is Christine and Mandy, too. These, like, really quite young women. Like, I think Christine was barely 20, 21. And Mandy is still a teenager when this is going on. And, like, these are not posh women. These are working class women. They are young. They're not refined in the traditional sense. And, like, most shockingly to everyone, they just do not back down. Like, the press come after them. Politics comes after them. Insane misogynist vitriol from all corners. They're openly called names like whore and slut mm. and dirty little prostitute. Those are direct quotes from male politicians of Jeez. the time commenting on these young women who are barely out of their teens. And Meanwhile, the men who participated in all this are what now? Exactly. Okay. Chillin and the Hamptons. Well, exactly. <laughs> British equivalent. <laughs> and men especially are amazed and incensed by what these women have done. And what they have done is they have not just exposed one guy. Just when you think it does not get any bigger than compromising international security with an affair, it does. Slowly, more and more stories start coming out about general misconduct and impropriety amongst, like, the great and the good. Like, we're talking socialites and aristocrats and politicians, maybe even royals. Oh, she's like, I got the, She's like, I got the British tea. And I'm not backing down. Exactly. It's this whole world of sex that relied on men like Stephen Ward to set it all up. And it relied on like the bodies of women like Mandy and Christine. And Mandy tells a story about like this naked guy wearing a mask that would act as like a waiter at like sex parties. And there's a rumor that it's a member of the royal family. Oh. There's a separate story that Prince Philip has mentioned. Like basically this whole facade of the British upper classes it's all coming crumbling down because now the public are like, oh, you guys do this too. Okay, so AMC, somebody, I need a miniseries. Yes. I need a miniseries. And I need a scene where there's a bulletin board with all the red string with other yes. people's yes. photos connecting everyone. You're talking about the serial killer Christine. sort of like um, map out thing? <laughs> yes. It's, yeah. All the dots are connected. Okay, so how does this all end? Stephen Ward, aka Littlefinger, is put on trial for pimping. But the night before he's sentenced, what do you think happens? And he took himself out. Poison takes a fatal overdose yeah. of sleeping pills and obviously there are still people that think he was in fact murdered. That's Russia's way. By, well, by the British establishment, they think, but it could also be in Russia or like the intelligence services. It's shady, basically. The day before. Yeah. Meanwhile, in government, the Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, that guy whose voice you heard at the top, he has pretty much had enough. He gets super sick and then after all of this scandal, all of this terrible press, he resigns. And a year later, his administration is gone. But what about John Profumo? I find this bit really fascinating because, like, months after Me Too first exploded, we find ourselves wondering, like, what we're meant to do with this big dumpster full of 
disgraced men? Like, where do we put them? How do we treat mm-hmm. them? And many of them, as we have talked about on this podcast, are actively planning their comebacks. Like, self-exile isn't an option. But self-exile is exactly what John Profumo did. Like, I get that before Twitter and TMZ, it was a lot easier to disappear, like in 60s Britain. But he literally went to go and scrub toilets for an anti-poverty organization. What? A charity in East London. And he stayed there as a volunteer for the rest of his life. Damn. That's all he did. Not one single interview, not one photo shoot like, until the day he died when he was 90. I would have left the country or something. Can I just... <laughs> no Hamptons for him. Oh, okay. No Matt Lauer compound. Like, you are also entitled to your skepticism, by the way, about the low stakes of a super rich guy being able to work for free. But the fact remains, this guy's charity atonement for the fallout from consensual sex lasted for the rest of his life. And a guy like Jeffrey Tambor, as we have discussed, couldn't even last a few months. Or one mm. interview with the Arrested or Development one cast. interview. So, in short, sex, spies, Russia, perjury, slut-shaming, trial by media, possible murder, and osteopathy. Don't ever let anyone tell you that British history is boring. <laughs> It's the big and the big. Hey, the big and the big. Hey. All right, folks, the world is in chaos. Voice of God is allegedly a dirty old man. Oh, Morgan oh, Freeman. Yeah. yeah. Drake is on the verge of being canceled. Oh. Mm. Someone's daddy. The NFL is barring players from peacefully protesting. Mothers are being forced to show photos of their babies on Facebook to prove that they are their parent. <sighs> You've heard about this, yes? Because the kid's biracial? Yes. Mm. Levels. And doofuses in Hawaii are being told that they cannot roast marshmallows no. over no. lava. <laughs> it's just not, It wouldn't be safe. Just don't do it. The Darwin Awards are there for a reason. Exactly. I am looking for any evidence that we as people, and humanity in general, has not paddled so far up Shit's Creek that we cannot get back. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm going to file this peak of the week under I'm going to take what I can get. Wonderful. Take what I can get files. For a few years now, we've sat around while there's been tons of vile and lies spewed on Twitter. Roseanne said a few things. Mm, A few. Just a few. A few. Mainly, she compared former Obama advisor Valerie Jarrett to an ape. And I was peeved. I was like, yeah, um, I'm mad. but Just peeved. Just peeved. <laughs> a little bit. Clearly nothing will come of this. I was like, her, you know, we'll get the usual canned response. Her PR person, the network that hosts her show, Roseanne, Disney ABC, is going to contact her. They're going to say, this is not appropriate. They'll write a response for her. And then she'll recite it and it'll go something like, even though I said this, these tweets are not reflective of my actions. And I love the blacks. Uh, I donated (laughs) to the NAACP in the 1980s. And at least two black people have been to my house for dinner. So I'll never do this again. Fingers crossed. Wink, wink. Right? I was like, that's totally how it'll go down. Then ABC. Too real. Too real. Too real. Then Disney ABC will follow up with a similar response. And they'll say something like, Rob Zanbar's statements are not reflective of our values. Although we stand by her right to free speech, we've discussed the matter with her. And we don't anticipate that she'll ever do it again. Move along. Nothing to see here. I mean, that's usually how it goes, right? Again, too real. But what I had forgot was... Back in 2016, during February, ABC Disney dropped a major Black History Month announcement when they appointed Channing Dungy as their head of programming because they made her the first black person to ever be the head of programming for a major television network. So she got a chair from Solange. 
She pulled up a seat (laughs) to the table. She kicked the door open and said, the clownery ends now. The clownery (laughs) ends now. So here's what she had to say about Roseanne earlier this year. We were really interested in looking at a family that is not kind of a well-to-do upper middle class. So that's giving us an opportunity to, to explore and really talk about people in this country who feel like they have been forgotten. Okay, so she tried with it. She tried to give Roseanne a chance. She was like, we're going to try to diversify our programming. And I guess she meant that, specifically the part about respecting diversity, because when Tuesday morning came after the holiday weekend, before we could wipe the barbecue off our faces. (laughs) With a quickness. She reminded us that she did not come here to play. She came here to what? Slay. Slay, bitch. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So she started the official statement with the usual polite language. Roseanne's Twitter statement is abhorrent repugnant and inconsistent with our values but she ended it with and we have decided to cancel her show bloop we didn't actually see that coming i did not see that coming left turn what i'm getting from her statement is what we're not gonna do is with claps <laughs> with with yeah. with the claps yeah see what you're not gonna do is yeah. disney ceo bob Iger followed that up with a tweet that said there was only one thing to do here and that was the right thing yes so like i said we've grown accustomed to like Things like this happening and there's no consequences. Mm -hmm. We all brush it under the rug. I'm going to sum it up with a tweet by Deborah Messing from Will and Grace. So she said, I just heard Roseanne is canceled. My reaction, tears. I'm so relieved and grateful. The hate that has spewed from those in Trump's orbit has really taken a toll on all of our souls and psyches. I didn't believe it would happen. I had lost faith. Thank you, ABC. Hmm. Thank you, ABC. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) I really like the way as well she calls Roseanne's tweet a statement because it is a statement. When you say stuff like this, it is a statement of who you are and what you think. It is not misspeaking. It is not careless talk. It's a statement every time. And we should call it that. Exactly. But you know what? Sometimes, according to Roseanne, when you're on Ambien, you do things that are outside of your it's character. It's a side effect. Yeah, and so part of her apology tour was basically saying that she had done a little, quote, Ambien tweeting, and that's why these remarks came out. And so the makers of Ambien mm-hmm. came back and clapped back on Twitter, quote, People of all races, religions, and nationalities work at Sanofi every day to improve the lives of people around the world. While all pharmaceutical treatments have side effects, racism <laughs> is not a known side effect of any Sanofi medication. Definitely not. Already tweet of the year. Exactly. You tried it. Now, Valerie Jarrett was really graceful in the way she handled it. She appeared on a special for MSNBC and she addressed the comments. And here's what she had to say. I'm fine. I'm worried about all the people out there who don't have a circle of friends and followers who come right to their defense. Look at that grace. I would not. I don't know that I could have been that graceful in a situation like that. And you know what? I'm not going to be that graceful in a situation like that because, Roseanne Barr, all you had to do was not call black people apes. How hard is that? So, girl. Bye, Felicia. It's important <laughs> This week had an abundance of pits. I can't even go into how many pits there were. So I've actually decided to pass my pit to someone else who needs it more than me. Oh. And that is Mr. Arbor Graham, a.k.a. Drake. Oh. oh. He's having one hell of a week. For those who don't know, Drake and Pusha T are involved in quite the rap battle beef. It's mm-hmm. got rather nasty. It's gotten rather nasty. So basically, I ain't the one to gossip, so you ain't heard it from me. Only this week, I am the one to gossip, and you're going to hear all of the tea from me because I am thoroughly invested in this beef. So the cliff notes, basically. Uh, Pusha T released an album, Daytona, produced by Kanye. I had sworn to boycott it. And actually, I did. I haven't listened to much of it. Oh, I congratulate you for that. Yeah. Mm. And also features a track called Infrared in which Pusha D brings up allegations of Drake ghostwriting. We've all heard this. He had a battle with Meek. He ended it with, you know, back to back. It was a a whole thing. 
so Drake dropped a diss track in response in which he, you know, he said a few things. He, he, he insulted Pusha T. He got in some, you know, some digs. However, he made a mistake in one dragging Kanye West into the beef in which he alleged that he wrote most of Life of Pablo. Uh-oh. Mm. Yeah. And uh, two, he mentioned Pusha T's fiance's name, Virginia Williams. Uh-oh. Pusha T also was like, what you not going to do with hand claps? And he responded with a track called The Story of Adidon. And many people believe this is going to ruin Drake's career. Mm. It's not. He has the number one song in the country right now, even after this. He does have the number one song in the country, even after this. However, as someone noted, when you die, your tracks tend to go back to number one. (gasps) As someone quicker than any of us said on Instagram recently. That is brutal. Yeah. Well, the shade. Uh, So I think the one thing that people are mostly talking about is the fact that the cover art for this diss track featured Drake in blackface. It did. Which is from what, like 2007 or something? It's hard to unsee that. It's from 2007 and Drake came out with a what had happened statement explaining it and basically he said that he was trying to make a statement about the state of black actors and how not much has changed since the time of blackface and sort of how you have to put on a, a special face to tap dance and put on for white people in auditions. What do you think about him saying that? Do you buy it? So here's the thing. Oh, level. I could be here all day. There are (laughs) levels to this. I think I would buy it if Drake, as an artist, had been more outspoken about blackness and black issues, but I've never heard him talk about it before. Right. So it's kind of interesting that that would be your response. Plus, in his statement, it was very much like, my friend at the time did it, so I did it too. So we were in this together. But there's an actor that he can call. There's somebody else who may understand his plight here. Actor Ben Vereen. I don't know if you guys know who that is, but he played Chicken George in the Roots Legacy movie back in the day. So in 19 1981, he appeared at Ronald Reagan's first inauguration that was televised on ABC and blackface. What? <gasps> but he did it as a critique and a tribute to an actor named Burt Williams, who was like a legacy actor from way back in the day who used to perform in blackface and he could only perform in blackface. But he was one of the most successful entertainers at that time. So he did this tribute. It was a two part tribute, one in which he showed him in blackface. And the second part of it was a critique. However, ABC only aired the first part. So black people dragged him. So if Drake needs to talk to somebody and he's a shoulder leaned on, he might want to give Ben Vereen a call. Well, isn't this relevant to the Drake picture thing? Because correct me if I'm wrong, it's a series of pictures, right? Mm -hmm. That picture that's on the front of the album is not the only shot that he did. There are other shots, right? There are other shots. So there's a picture of him sort of like, you know, shucking and jiving. There's another picture of him looking a lot more sad and dejected. And it's supposed to be this artistic comment on, you know, the state of black actors. Actors. I don't know, girl. I don't know if he's going to make it out. So anyway, that was not the only punch that Pusha T threw. Pusha T talked about his mama. You mentioned wedding ring like it's a bad thing. Your father walked away at five, hell of a dad thing. Marriage is something that Sandy never had, Drake. How you a winner, but she keep coming in last place. Okay, so Sandy is his mom. Oh. And Drake has talked long about the fact that his mom is a little lonely. Also, he came for Drake's blackness. Confused, always felt you weren't black enough. Afraid to grow it because your fro wouldn't nap enough. In case you didn't understand what's happening there, he's coming for the black card. He, he's trying to take the black card out of Drake's wallet. He's like, just run, run me that. You're mm-hmm. not. Yeah. He revealed his alleged secret son and apparently ruined a deal that he has with Adidas. What? Yeah. This just gets more and more insane. This yeah. is also very, very mean. Yeah. A baby's involved. It's deeper than rap. We talking character. Let me keep with the facts. You are hiding a child. Let that boy come home. Deadbeat mother playing border patrol. Ooh. Adonis is your son, and he deserves more than an Adidas press run. That's real. 
So that hurt. The Border Patrol line is the fact that Drake allegedly impregnated a woman who was a former adult film actress. She lives overseas, and Drake has been keeping this whole thing and the birth of their son a secret. His name is Adonis, and apparently he was working on a deal with Adidas for a line of something, which was going to be called Adidon, named after his son, like a combination of Adonis and Adidas. And that's what that reference was. Yikes. Yeah, it's, yeah. This is nuts. So that scene from Black Panther where the character says, you should have brought your son home. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is basically a premonition. You were wrong. Yeah. You should have brought the boy home. That one? He should have sampled that. Yes. Um, And lastly, he came for his best friend and producer, Noah Shabib, better known as OVO40, who suffers from MS. And he had this to say about him. OVO40 hunched over like he 80. Tick, tick, tick. How much time he got that man is. Sick, sick, sick. I got the Low blow, if you ask me. All right, Team Drake after that. On, yeah. top, on top of that, this track dropped the day before World MS Day. Like, Drake's best friend is, like, collateral damage, and I know that, like, all is fair in love and diss tracks or whatever, mm. but that went way too far. Way too far. And so people are OVO saying... OVO didn't do anything to push a T. Rap purists are saying that nothing is off limits when it comes to rap battles and that OVO is fair game because Drake brought Kanye into the mix. Mm. But, but Kanye has done his own dirt. Pretty much. Now I'm being a Drake apologist. <laughs> I, I picked a side today. Well, here are levels, though. Levels. Like I said, I could talk about this all day. One, it's interesting that Pusha T chose to do this on a track that was used by Jay-Z. The song that he's rapping over is the story of OJ, which is from Jay-Z's 444 album. However, it's been alleged for decades that Jay-Z has a secret son. Like oh. it's open, not like it's talked oh. about openly. Also, it's interesting that he's coming for Drake and he's making all these allegations and trying to take his quote black card and trying to talk about him being a ghostwriter when it's clear that Kanye also has used ghostwriters and his black card is in question at the moment for a lot of things as he does. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, Mr. Trump endorsement. There's so much hypocrisy and levels to this. Either way, I'm clutching my pearls for Drake. This is not only a pit of the week, it's a pit of the career. I feel like this is a rough one. I feel like pit doesn't cover it. I feel yeah. like we need a new word. The yeah. sinkhole of the week. Yeah. Oh. It just like opened up. We didn't expect it. And our whole house is gone. Exactly. One of those ones that swallows houses. Yeah. Uh, poltergeist, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> so my song of the week is actually from the 1980s when I was a wee one. However, it hasn't aged a bit. In a past life when I was a bartender, I would literally perform and actually sing into the bottles every time this song came on oh, into the club. Oh, my. It's one of my favorites. And recently, social media has revived it with memes, and people are using it to complete all kinds of thoughts. So how many days of the week do you procrastinate? So that is an old school song, Saturday Love by Alexander O'Neill and Sherelle. One, the song is timeless. Uh, it's perfect for karaoke because, like, duh. duh, you can sing it. Also, pick a day of the week when you're most petty. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, <laughs> Wednesday, Thursday. So last question. How often does Drake think about that dragon from Pusha oh. T? Oh. This episode was edited by me with help from Ashley Ann Krigbaum. All original music is by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. And as always, our podcast papa is David Marcus. Until next time, you can find us on social media. I'm Excuse My Beauty without the first D on Twitter, with the first D on Instagram. I'm at Teacup in the Bay on all relevant platforms, apart from LinkedIn. <laughs> and I'm Jimmy Just Says on Instagram and Twitter. Message us. We're lonely. Speak for yourself. <laughs>